Turn with me this morning, please, to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Thank you again for the opportunity to be able to bring God's word to you in the midst of challenging circumstances for the cappers, for your church, and please be assured of our prayers and where we worship at Trinity PCA in Johnstown of our ongoing prayers for you both and, and for this entire church as you would draw near to your beloved brother and sister at this time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read the entire chapter, but it's just a brief chapter. But before we even do that, let's ask the Lord for his help. It's his word. Oh, our Father, we... In our best moments, we know that whatever you ordain is right, but we struggle with that in times of trial, with the questions that come. This church faces this situation now. Lee and Nancy face this situation. And so does what we read here about the Thessalonian church and the circumstances they went through and how against all odds you did such a marvelous work. May we feel that today. Holy Spirit, we plead that you would open our hearts to these things, that it would give us great hope and joy as those who would receive your word as it truly is the word of God, and that we, in the midst of it, would be pointed to you with our eyes firmly fixed upon you, Lord Jesus, as we wait for your glorious return. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly. Mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for our sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. Imagine, if you would, we go to a Christian bookstore, which is becoming more and more difficult these days with online sales. The uh, Christian bookstore in our area just closed not too long ago, but imagine we did, or maybe we could look for this book online. We were seeking to find a book that introduces us to the Christian faith, and as we're looking, we come across this title. Christianity in three easy steps. And you're good reformed Christians. And automatically red flags go off. Well, probably this is some sort of a pop Christian book that makes the Christian life much easier than it's meant to be. And you quickly pass over that title and you're looking for something a little more substantial. An introduction nonetheless, but more substantial than this, what seems to be an easy approach to the Christian faith. I would never recommend such a book to you. Instead, I'm going to preach such a sermon. (laughs) Christianity in three easy steps. From this chapter in 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 1, in a letter that was written to rejoice in and encourage such an approach to the Christian life. And so my challenge to you all this morning, to all of us, is simply this. May our lives be marked by turning from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son Jesus to return. There's the three steps. Turn, serve, wait. Easy approach to the Christian life, but oh, how difficult. But we have a God of grace who gives us help in these things, just as he did for the Thessalonians. And Paul writes this letter. He had planted the church on his second missionary journey. And as you read the book of Acts, and you know, we read the letters of Paul, we can oftentimes go back to the book of Acts and see how things got started. And that's true with the Thessalonians. You go to Acts chapter 17. Paul had been in 
Philippine ends up in Thessalonica, this really bustling city of over 200,000 people, and he plants a church there. The Jews weren't real receptive, but the, the Gentiles were. But very quickly, Paul and Silas and Timothy face quite a bit of trouble. Persecution arises. This is a, a church that is established, as far as we know, in a few months, and the one who was leading them is forced out of the city to Berea and Athens, and then eventually to Corinth, from where, as far as we know, he wrote this letter to them because he was very concerned. And even before writing the letter, he sent Timothy to go and check on them because you can imagine the anxiety he might have experienced knowing that this church, which had been established in three short months, he had to leave it. And he had to leave it in the midst of great trouble and persecution. And he's wondering, you know, what has happened? Has this, has this work disintegrated? You can imagine how easily that would have taken place. That Satan would have torn the place to shreds in the midst of persecution for young believers to go through this. But lo and behold, against all odds, Timothy comes back to tell him, not only is the church still there, it's thriving. How could that be? You know how that can be. As Paul writes with rejoicing in his heart to commend them for the work that's going on and to recognize that ultimately it's not about them. It's about the Lord and his word and how when the word of God was preached to them, they didn't receive it simply as the word of man, but as the word of God. And that word came with power and conviction because it was brought by the power of the Holy Spirit into their lives. There's the explanation how in the midst of great affliction, they could rejoice in receiving the word and prosper as a young church. Paul writes about this and writes as well, as you know, in chapter 4, a controversial chapter regarding the rapture of Jesus Christ. The people were very concerned about what was going to happen when the Lord returned. And, and this helps us to see that this was a young church that didn't know a whole lot. And they thought, well, maybe, you know, the Christians who die and they're buried, they're going to be at a disadvantage when Jesus comes back, which is exactly the opposite, as Paul tells us. But there were things they had to deal with. But Paul writes, rejoicing at what had happened there and how their faith is being broadcast everywhere. He says, we don't, we don't need to say anything about you. The people tell us 
the kind of reception you gave us. And here's the key verses here. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thessalonica was a big, bustling city. Lots of commerce, and with that, lots of false religion. And people who are truly worshiping false gods and even statues. And we can understand for them that there would be this need as the greatest reception that Paul got there was among the Gentiles, how they needed to turn from this false worship to God. And Paul commends them for that. In a sense, in a, in a more general way, to recognize that turning from false gods is simply repenting and turning away from sin to the Lord. You know, when we come to Jesus Christ, there is a turning from sin and a turning to Jesus. You've heard, I'm sure, the illustration of Repentance and faith being two sides of the same coin. And that's taking place here. And he says, you turned to serve the living and true God. You, you're turning away from your devotion, your service of idols, of false gods, to the true and living God. And no doubt Paul has in mind here what we know is Jeremiah chapter 10, where Jeremiah is speaking about idolatry and how people are tempted to turn to it. And he talks about these false gods, these idols, and the folly of serving them. They don't speak, they don't walk. You have to carry them around with you. He talks about the scarecrow in the cucumber field, these idols. But the Lord, here's the key verse in that passage, Jeremiah 10.10. 10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God. Not like these dead idols these false gods. He is the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. So Jeremiah is clearly saying, you can serve the dead false god idols where you can serve the living and true God. And if you don't, you will face his wrath, and you will not endure it. 
And that's another reason why I believe Paul had Jeremiah 10 in mind, because he goes on to talk about the fact that as you turn to the true and living God, you're waiting for this deliverance from the wrath to come, knowing that the living God gives you life through Jesus who died for your sins, who rose again for your justification. He won the victory over death because he never sinned to give you life. And now you are participating in the life of this living God and what he has to give. As Jesus, who rose from the dead, ascended to be with his Father, and he is going to come back, and he's going to save us fully and finally when he comes to bring wrath and judgment upon all the nations who don't serve the living and true God, who have not turned from idols. And it might seem like, well, you know, he's talk, talking about a one in a once-and-done deal where they turn from idols to the true and living God. But, but we know so much of the instruction of the New Testament tells us otherwise, that the temptation exists for Christians to turn back to idolatry. So Jesus makes it clear to those who are listening to him, some of them disciples, in the parable, or in the Sermon on the Mount, and says, you can't serve God and money. They both can't be masters in your life. And we recognize this. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 6. We, we've been delivered from sin to serve God, to become his slaves, literally, making it clear. In our Christian lives and the battle we face spiritually, we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to God. One or the other is master. Now, that does not mean you're, going, you're not going to struggle with serving other things in sin. But it's clear that you can't have God as your master and something else. You know, within speaking about idolatry, clearly the first two commandments are in mind as we consider the living and true God, that you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourselves any graven images, idols. And that catechism question, are there more gods than one? There is but one only clearly alluding to Jeremiah 10, and one of the proof texts that's used there is Jeremiah 10, 10. There is but one only, the living and true God.
He alone can be your master, and he demands of all of us exclusive worship, but that struggle remains. Otherwise, Paul would not have had to say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, run, flee from idols. And John would not have closed his first epistle, the very last statement he makes. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. If it wasn't a temptation for believers we wouldn't find such instruction. So this, this idea of turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son isn't a once and done deal. It is an ongoing thing that takes place in our lives. Every day we wake up. Every hour of every day and every minute of every hour We've got decisions to make. Am I going to serve the living and true God, or am I going to serve some idol? And I'm sure you've heard about idolatry before here, or read about it, and you know that it, it doesn't have to be a statue. If it could only be so easy, I don't, I don't, I don't bow down to any statues. Yeah, it's really not a huge struggle in our country, apart from the teachings of Roman Catholicism and the adoration of images, perhaps. But there are other religions that have come into our country that advocate such. But, but by and large, in the American church, it's not a huge issue. But it's not so easy, is it? Because the idol doesn't have to be a statue. You know, the Puritan David Clarkson wrote a book back in the 17th century about soul idolatry, where he talks about the fact that it doesn't have to be an idol made out of wood and covered with silver. We have the idols of the heart. And an idol is anything in the end that takes away from our devotion to the true and living God, that wants us to come to it that wants us to serve it and give it allegiance. John Milton, another Puritan, though that's not totally without question, but that's a whole other discussion, talks about the fact that idols can be a false representation of God, a false God, or a false representation of the true God. So, you may not be worshiping the god Allah, but you might be worshiping a distortion of the god of Scripture, thinking you're worshiping him truly, but you've created for yourself another god. And so, there are Christians within what we know as the evangelical church that so emphasize the grace of God and salvation, rightly so, and how you are only saved through Jesus Christ. He alone, by his grace, can take you to heaven. It doesn't depend on your works, and all that's good, but they emphasize it to the point that you're 
obedience is good, but God really doesn't obligate you to such. You're, you're, you're not perfect. You're just forgiven. And they would so emphasize the grace of God that they would take away any sense that a true believer, as James makes very clear, is going to show his faith by his works. And if you don't, it's not that your works save you. It shows that you've never been truly united to Jesus Christ, who not only justifies you, not only takes away your sins and and you stand declared righteous before God, but he sanctifies you. You're dying to sin. You're turning from idols. You're living for him. You are performing good works. And so it can be a false representation of the true God. And we can go on, can't we? Money can take your devotion away from God or your stuff. Your children. The children can so easily become what you focus on that it takes away from the Lord. And we can go on. The list is endless. Oh, there's sports, and there's food, and alcohol, and sexual desire, and our work, and our service to the church. Service to the church? Yes, I remember a woman vividly. This has been etched in my mind, which easily does not happen for me. But she was talking about how devoted she was to all that was going on in the church. And one night she was leaving. Where are you going, Mommy? I'm, I'm going off, I forget, some study or prayer meeting. Whatever. All good things, see? See, idolatry can be about good things that are carried too far, like our families and service to the church. And her daughter said to her, Mommy, when are you going to spend time with us? And it hit her like a ton of bricks that her service to the church had become something that took away from her right devotion to her family. It can be right doctrine. I'll pick on my own denomination. Instead of the PCA, I'll pick on the OPC. There is a tendency among some in the OPC to so glory in doctrine that the tendency towards idolatry can occur. We hold to the Westminster standards, which you should. I believe it's the greatest summary of the scriptures that exist, but to the point where that actually becomes an idol to us, something we're sinfully proud of. And we can we can go on to talk about so many things that become idols in our lives and some that, that are spoken of as though they were noble. 
You'll never hear somebody be spoken of in a noble way for being an alcoholic. But workaholic? I'm a workaholic. And you'll even hear Christians say that with pride. But the truth of the matter is as important as their work is in providing for their families and and being servants of the Lord, sometimes it can get in the way of our devotion to that very Lord. What do we do about that? I mean, what is the solution? I, I could say to you, oh, you stop. Stop making an idol out of work or eating or your family or your service to the church. But it's not that way. The key to turning from idols is to be turning to something else in the process. And that something else is Jesus Christ. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, you know, this race of life that you're running, the Christian faith, run it with patience, with endurance laying aside the sin that so easily besets you, putting aside every weight, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Your Savior. He's the one who can deliver you. He's the one who can forgive you. We're, we're, we're all tempted to idolatry in this life. In him is forgiveness the foundation to remain in the acceptance of God. And in him is our grand example of one who held everything in balance. You see, he was devoted to many things in life, but his ultimate devotion was to his father that kept everything in check. So you are to be devoted to your service here and to your family and to your job. And it is appropriate for you to enjoy life and pleasure. All under the umbrella of delighting yourself in the Lord. Think of idolatry in this way. I, I'm usually not one given to a lot of alliteration. I used to be, but not anymore. It's fine. But the, these three came together. When you think of idolatry, think of delight, desire, and devotion. That which brings us the light, we tend to desire. And as we desire it and we get it and it brings us further delight, we become devoted to it. You know, drug dealers get people hooked on drugs by giving them drugs for free at times. And it, for example, heroin, which is a highly addictive drug, gives somebody some heroin. It's, it's delightful. And they desire it, and they desire it more to the point where they're hooked, they're addicted, they're devoted to it. It has become a god in their lives. And the things in life that bring us delight, like family, eating, alcohol, things that can be enjoyed, rightly so, before the Lord, can bring us such delight that we desire them more and more to the point where we no longer eat and drink and whatever we do to the glory of God instead, that becomes our God. 
And the key, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 37, I think, which is a key to turning away from idolatry in our lives, my brothers and sisters, is when we hear, delight yourself, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Which is not saying, if you enjoy the Lord, he's going to give you everything you want. No, you're, if you delight in the Lord, your desires become his. That brings you delight, and that creates devotion. As we read in Psalm 34, taste, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. As we know the goodness of the Lord, and our delight is in him, our desires will be more and more for him, and our devotion to him will be all the more greater. Close with an illustration from the Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you're aware of the story of passion and patience. In the interpreter's house, this Christian is on the way to the celestial city, and the interpreter takes him into, the, into this little room, and there are two boys sitting there. One is passion, the other one's patience. Passion is the older of the two because of Adam. And patience is sitting quietly in his chair. Passion is all agitated, clearly discontent with what's going on. And Christian says, well, what's going on here? And the interpreter says, well, their master has asked them to wait for him to come back. And when he does, he'll give them the good things he promised. And patience is waiting quietly, but passion is agitated. And he continues to watch, and somebody comes and dumps a bag of treasure at the feet of passion. And he scoops it up, and he turns to patience and laughs at him. <laughs> he has his treasure, and he runs off, and he spends it all. And he comes to rags. And the interpreter goes on to explain to Christian, these are pictures of the people of this world. Some are of this world, and they want all their good things now. And others are of the world to come. They're waiting patiently for the return of their master, for their good things. Their eyes are upon him, not upon the stuff of this life. You see, we're so easily given to idolatry, and the interpreter explains this in this image, because what is in front of us in this world is right there, ready for the taking. Carnal sense, which lays hold of it. And then there are those things that we can't see with the naked eye that we have to wait for, the good things. That's where our hearts need to be as we struggle against idolatry. And that greatest idol, Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish covenanter, speaks about it, calls it the master idol. 
a whorish creature calls it a house devil. We blame the devil for our sins, but there's this house devil that causes us to sin. It is the great idol of our lives. Do you know what it is? It's the one you see every morning when you look in the mirror, the idol of self. We struggle with that more than anything else. Me, the me first mentality, my desires, my well-being, my health, my stuff my life. It's right here. And we can become consumed with it. May we instead be like patients waiting for the good things in the life to come. Little children, I hope you don't take offense at me saying that. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Our Father, forgive us, we're so given to idolatry and the idol of self so easily we turn away from what, what we need to pursue to pursue the things of this life in this world. Forgive us for this. Have mercy upon us, Lord Jesus. May our delight be in you. May our eyes be fixed upon you and what you bring when you return. The truly good and lasting things. May this be our pursuit. Pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ.